trying to make it right These people won't let me go I'm just trying to live my life I just need space to grow I'm just trying to make it right These people won't let me go Let me grow, let me go Let me grow, let me go They should know, they should know They should know, they should know I'm just trying to live my life I just need space to grow Welcome to the Tea with Brie. I'm your host, Brie. Thanks for listening. The Tea with Brie podcast is focused on deep, honest, and vulnerable conversation. Each week, I sit down with a different guest in order to have those conversations. Every week, we'll start with my guest bio and intro into how we know each other, and then we'll go into a deep dive conversation about whatever topic they brought to me that week. This week, I'm joined by my guest, Mimi Styles. In 2015, Mimi Styles founded Measure to promote the use of evidence-based projects and tools to real-life stories behind the numbers. As a catalyst for systems changing, Measure has grown to be a fully operational nonprofit social enterprise that provides free data support to Black and Brown-led organizations while charging white-led organizations the full right of Measure services to contribute to this anti-racist revenue model. So far, the organization has provided over 1,300 free data support hours to Black and Brown-led organizations. They're also responsible for strategic partnerships with the University of Texas, Texas Southern University, and more with the goal of distributing traditional research in exchange for Black and Brown-led lived experience protocols. Jamila Mimi Stiles is an AARO fellow, past chairwoman of Miss Juneteenth, Austin Police Chief's Award of Excellent Recipient, Austin 40 Under 40 Winner 2019, past chairwoman of African TV 5, and the Austin Black Chamber's 2017 Community Leader of the Year. Ms. Stiles holds a Bachelor's of Science in Communications, Master of Public Administration with a concentration on national security, and was certified in performance measurement through George Washington University College of professional studies. She's also the wife of a U.S. veteran and the mother of four. Hey, Mimi. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. <laughs> uh, I need you to understand how excited I am to have you on the show. You were, <laughs> you, you were for sure like on, so when I first started in 2019, I was like, okay, what's who are like some of your like shoot for the stars guests? And it was you, it was Virginia Cumberbatch, it was Pamela yes. Benson. And I'm like, okay, God, I see you. Like <laughs> to even be named like in the same sentence with Virginia and Pamela, that's like that's incredible. So, so you you three <laughs> are the top three. And it's just <laughs> I'm trying to I'm trying to think. I don't think we first met. We met okay. I've been yeah. fangirling about you since 2019 when we awarded measure and award at the NLC awards that year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you and I spoke the following year. Yeah. Right. Last, last January, which seems like forever ago at the women's rally. Yeah. And that was like the first time you talked to me and I was like, <laughs> <laughs> my, oh my, friend, God. my friend Kelsey was there and she goes to me, me just talk to you like to me, we just talk. We had a, we had a whole like, 
Oh my god, that women's rally was the bomb, wasn't it? Yes, we had a whole Uh, fangirl because it was like it was you, it was Meredith, it was my friend Sarah, who I'm that's the one I'm watching her house right now. And I was like, it was just wild, so wild. And so, like, (laughs) fast forward to now to like have you on the show just feels very like full circle and kismet. And here we are, yay! I love it. No, I love it. I'm more than like grateful to even be like invited to talk to you like I have and it's just like this mutual thing going on because like you know me like I'm all over your Instagram I'm like and then I'm like um you know like my daughter she's like mom you're not supposed to respond to every single thing like that like and I'm like liking everything commenting and like all day long and she's my she's like mom there's like a strategy to all that I don't know anything about that strategy though me neither I I don't like your biggest insta fan follower uh, well, it's funny because I'm like the worst millennial ever I'm like I don't have snapchat I don't have tiktok I have instagram but I barely get notifications like so I we are there we are there together <laughs> but it's funny I didn't even know your daughter was your daughter until this year but she and I did a photo shoot like two years ago through a mutual friend and I was like wait a minute <laughs> this <Yeah>. small <laughs> world just us the smallest world in Austin so Yeah, I'm super excited to talk to you today about Black girl activism, about Black girls in general, what Nazar does, and the whole whole gambit. Um, To start, how long have you lived in Austin? So I have been in Austin since 2014. Um, I never intended to live here. Like, that's just, let me start off Mm -hmm. with that, because Mm -hmm. we, my family, um, we were in the army, my husband was in the army, and um, we decided to move to Austin just like off the whim. Like we got out of the army and then um, we had the choice to go to back home to California where we're from, we're from Oceanside, California or someplace else. And the night before we were supposed to drive to California, I had this epiphany. I'm like, you know what? I don't wanna go to California. I wanna go to Austin. Like out of nowhere, I have my best friend does live here. So I've been here, I visited um, a couple of times, but we had nothing set up at all, (laughs) but did the, you know, just did the journey and and moved here um, out of nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that's everyone's like, if you're not from here, like, I don't, I just kind of ended up here. Like they're like, what's brought you here? Like, I don't know. Like it just was a feeling. I think everyone just has like that feeling or that epiphany of like, I just need to be in Austin. And I think it's super interesting now. I've been here almost five years. It'll be five years at the end of May. So for me, it was really interesting coming from a very diverse place. Like I'm from the Northeast. I'm from Connecticut. And so it's like right next to New York and New Jersey. So it's like very densely populated and also super diverse. And my hometown had like 60,000 people. So it was about 40% white, 40% black, and then 20% other people of color. So so now I have lived in Austin the last five years. And I think that's why like I fangirled about you and Virginia and Pamela, because it was like black women being in this space. So there's not a lot of space for black women here because there's not I mean, with the black population is what, like 8% in Austin right now. So that's been a big thing on my mind as I continue to think like, will I stay here forever? Um, and I think that was a really, that was a big part of your speech when you talked at the women's rally about like, we sit here and talk about feminism, but we have to remember that feminism was for white women. And that's why the womanist movement came came to be. And so thinking of myself as a black girl activist and the work that y'all do is super like 
important and moving to me as well. Yeah, no, that's, that's real talk. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's always like when we're talking about feminism, if we're talking about youth, it's like, we we never, again, disaggregate the data. we never disaggregate the, even the term, like unpack the term, right? Mm-hmm. When I disaggregate. And so, yeah, we have to kind of remove ourselves from these higher, you know, ideas of thinking about feminism. We have to think about black feminism. What does that look like? You know, we have to think about black youth or even unpack it even more. We have to think about black girls. So, um, yeah, I mean, I have, when I, you know, when I got here to Austin, I definitely didn't have any intention on (laughs) doing this work. I kind of fell into it. Uh, Mind you, I have a pretty um, active background and back active history before coming to Austin. So my, um, my background, I can kind of tell you a little bit about that is like, you know, back in the sixties and the seventies, my grandfather, his name was Charles Taliaferro. He worked between the Black Panther Party and his community as a commissioner. So he was a police commissioner. He wasn't a cop, but he drove around sometimes in a, in a police car. Okay. Mm -hmm. And he, um, he really just kind of worked to create conversations and hold town halls. Um, he started um, programs for youth, um, you know, back in those days and just did a lot of work, you know, focused in on trying to get drugs out of the community. Um, and mind you, this was all during Cointel Pro. So I just don't can't even imagine the crap that he was probably really working around, right, to even do that really great social work um, in his community. Um, at the same time, my dad was, you know, was a Black Panther. My uncle, um, Little Charles, was heavy into, um, was heavy into the party at that time. So, I mean, I always tell people, like, I can't imagine what, like, the, the dinner table would be like. You know, you got your dad who's driving around sometimes in a cop car, and then you got, you know, his sons who are just 100%, you know, militant, like, ready to go. Um, and then my dad also, like when I was born, um, around the, um, the eighties and the nineties, my dad, um, you know, worked with the NAACP. So he was VP of the NAACP in Oceanside, California, um, worked really closely to like Reggie Owens, who was also a a very, um, prominent, um, activist in, in California, um, and so I kind of feel like I grew up under the pulpit of that work. And my, my, like my dad made everything into a movement in my life. Like everything was a movement, okay? Like when I, my first data gathering um, protest was I was in third or fourth grade. And um, I tell the story sometimes, it's, it's all about chocolate milk. So I'm going through the lunch line in elementary school, Pacific Elementary School, Oceanside, California, Deep Valley. Okay, I just have to say that. So I'm going through the lunch line and I'm looking at the milk and all the milk is like regular milk, right? And in my mind, you know, raised by my dad, I'm like, oh, well, they need chocolate milk. Why they only got white milk? Why does milk only have to be white? They should have chocolate milk too, okay? Um, so I started a petition and I, you know, I went home first and I told my dad, he's like, you have to rise against the power. You can, you can do it. Mimi, you know, giving me all this encouragement. I'm like, yes, all pumped up. So I go back, I start a petition, get hundreds and hundreds of signatures. And then I go lobby the principal. Okay. We have this much community power and we want chocolate milk. 
And I mean, so anyway, I, I got it. I won. Um, and, you know, to this day forward, well, they just, they're gentrifying my neighborhood now back home, but they, um, you know, they, to that day, they had little third graders and second graders all sugared up to chocolate milk. So <laughs> like, creating the change that you can all just be hopped up on sugar at 10 AM. I mean, uh, I, I learned what collective power looked like, you know, I really? learned that you can, that you can make change by just, you know, getting, gathering the data, gathering the numbers and, um, and talking to the right people <laughs> to get it done. Yeah. I, I think one of the most interesting things about, so my background is in social work, sociology. And so for me, it's always, and then to, I guess, to back up even farther, like I grew up in a very like pro-black, very religious family. My godfather is a pastor of a church. His father's the founder of that church. And they founded the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Love March, which is like in honor of MLK. And it's been going on since 1971. So my first like marching, I was like five or six and my whole family did it. And it was just like a remembrance march. Um, but me too, having um, family who was super involved in the civil rights movement um, and, and then being raised in the black church to constantly be told that, you know, your voice matters. You have a right to stand up for yourself. You have a right to take up space. Um, and so like fast forward to now and everyone's always like, tell me about your story. It's like this whole drawn out long thing of, of everything I've gone through with my family. Um, but I think also now as a black woman who was raised in that space by folks who were taught, who taught me to take up space. I think now we, we see this a lot with every movement going on. I, for me, it's always black women are at the helm of it. Like black lives matter movement was started by three black women. Um, we see black women show up the most at any protest. If it's anything from school board to protecting children to, um, I mean, we saw how black women saved this country with voting this year, right? Like, so it's just, for me, it's just constantly that we, if we don't see it, we'll build it. But also like if other people build it, we'll support it. And so it's always been interesting for me, like to be in this community uh, as a black woman and, and in the community of black women, of how, how a lot of our stories really overlap. And, but also remember that like black people, specifically black women aren't a monolith. And so like to see the work that you are doing now with collecting data when we are so often ignored is so powerful. And I would love to hear like how measure came to be, because I feel like it's not a thing that people think of, like, I'm going to go collect numbers and use that as a, as a way to prove to people that we exist and we need these things. Yeah, no, I'd love to share that. Um, you know, I, I started work um, here in Austin um, with Chasmore AJC. We were, you know, we put on like the Black Male Summit. I, I um, kind of supported that work. And then we just, I mean, we were going balls to the wall, <laughs> like during the, during 2015, around that time, height of the Black Lives Matter movement, going back, back and forth from here to Washington, D.C. to doing, you know, representing um, what, the work that we're doing in Austin as much as possible. Um, and so there was a there was a community forum that Chaz threw me on, okay? And I always say that um, me and Chaz have this like funny relationship where like, <laughs> we don't always agree, okay? And he'll mm -hmm. tell you, he'll be the first one to tell you, we don't always agree, but we definitely support. I got his back, you know, in same way, um, same way on mine. But anyway, he threw me on this panel. Maybe you wanna do it. I'm like, okay, fine. <laughs> so I get on the panel. And the panel was the NAACP president, Nelson Linder. It was the mayor, 
um, uh, the wonderful councilwoman or Houston, um, the police, the, uh, the, so it was Chief Manley at that time, but he was not the chief at that time. It was mm. Art Acevedo. So I'm on this panel and we're talking about community policing. And I did not understand why we were talking about community policing because I had that night before done a lot of research on their key performance indicators or metrics for Austin Police Department. I didn't see anything there that said that community policing was a budgetary um, priority. And so when I got on that panel, I started asking questions like, okay, how are we assessing community policing? What is making community policing a thing at, at Austin Police Department? Where is the data? You know, I, I was really just like, where is the data? And, um, and I was asking, you know, what for the data that you do have, which is pretty much community sentiment, like how does the community feel about being policed by Austin Police Department, the numbers were kind of high. They were like 70 some odd percent are happy with the work. And so I then started digging deeper into that question. And I said, okay, so where's, you know, who created the survey? Where's the survey methodology? Who got the survey? Who didn't get the survey? You know, questions like that, um, where's the data? And so I realized at that point, um, the way that I was showing up on that panel, I got a lot of flack from our community because I wasn't showing up in a way that was, um, I think more so like the angry, you know, black mm. woman activists. Like I wasn't doing that. I wasn't holding, I don't think I was holding the police department accountable in the way that has been traditionally held accountable. Like you did this to us, you did that to us, you did this to us. It was more of like, where's the data? Prove, mm -hmm. prove to me what you're saying is true by the numbers. Um, so I had a lot of dissent from my own community. I also had a lot of dissent from, you know, from the institution, from the police department, because they're, you know, they don't want to show us the data. And honestly, back in 2014, 15, data wasn't sexy at that point. You know, that wasn't really a huge conversation. It, you know, this idea of like lived experience data and, you know, proving it through the numbers, it just wasn't really being talked to, at least in where, where I was coming from, from my you know, from the folks that we, I was talking to. So then I said, you know what, you know, Chad's even encouraged me too, but you know, Hey, go start measure. You know what I'm saying? Like start, start this idea of like using data in order to, to fuel this conversation. And I think that we really did a great job in terms of fueling this conversation. You see, cause like we millennials, this, our generation is like, we are, we have all of the the lessons learned from our forefathers, right? And from our foremothers who have done all of this work. But I think that we also have this, this, um, this like hunger and thirst for proof, right? Um, mm -hmm. Don't just tell me what you're gonna do. Don't just sit me at the table. You know, you know what I'm saying? Show me, sit me at, sit me at the table, but also provide me your dashboard so that I can measure what is true and what is not true. And so that's, um, that's really where it came from. Started with the Measure Austin project, brought police officers together as well as local um, advocates um, and community members to talk about what you know what type of measures would should be in place. And you know this was a very early on conversation before I knew a lot about even evidence based policing. Um, but you know, at that point, we decided that we really wanted to make sure that there was implicit bias training, which now, if you ask me about implicit bias training, I have a whole bunch of stuff to say about it. But, um, you know, that was one thing that we felt like that would be a move in the right direction. And so we were able to get that passed. And now, you know, police officers at APD have to have that 
training mandatory. Um, but now I'm pushing a little bit further. So it's a, it's, it was a, it was a, an organization that was um, birthed out of um, curiosity, a lot of curiosity, a lot of anger, um, and, uh, and then also a lot of love at the same time. Mm, there's so much I want to talk about there. Um, I think the first thing is, is that sort of the model that you use with charging white organizations full price in order for them to use or to collect the data for them and to, to have that model in a city that is working so hard, air quotes, to be progressive and liberal and reminding people that those two don't equate to anti-racist. And so for your work to be able to like, hey, you're going to pay full price so that we can help folks who are systematically oppressed in this way and make sure they have the resources. And I, I sit with that right now. Also, what you saying, like the sort of like flack you got back for not for not being in like the quote angry black woman on the panel. And I constantly remind people like, again, black people aren't a monolith, but also like we there's different ways to be activists right i think people always think about the people who are marching the people who are constantly on panels the people who go on hunger strikes right there's so many different ways to do it like with you your your realm may be collecting data as your form of, of activism other folks it's going and doing a sit-in somewhere and so i think that's also been interesting in the last year of seeing how different people protest um, and then also, like you say, with millennials, we are such an interesting, <laughs> interesting group of people um, because we grew up with like not really like our parents weren't helicopter parents, really. We had the Internet, but we also had the time right before the Internet. Like I often tell the story, like I asked so many questions when I was little. My mom went and bought me an encyclopedia kit because she got yeah. she got sick of like me asking. She's like, you can go look. <laughs> she goes, you can go look it up. Like if you want to know something here are your resources and the resources were was a full encyclopedia kit. Um, and then as the world, you know, the Internet really took off, we had like Ask Jeeves, which it was the best search engine ever. Fight me. Mm-hmm. Um, but. <laughs> And then also like just looking at how millennials communicate, like we are just, we, we, people often say that we expect handouts, but it's like, we don't, like we work really hard and we are really the ones who are experienced, you know, what it means to like not be able to buy a house because the housing market is ridiculously expensive. We're seeing the effects of gentrification and wanting to change it. Um, We had the option of wanting to go to college or go to trade school. So I don't know. I always think about our, our generation of like that sort of like, turning point of the two like like you're saying the the knowledge of our four parents and then also technology sort of catching up and us kind of like being in the middle of it and so while we have access we also remember what it means like work hard and search for an answer and also make our make our own way so those are the things that came to our mind (laughs) no that's good too and we also saw women like work really hard right like my I saw my mom work very, very hard, you know, in the 90s and like grow to be like one of the top women um, uh, in, in like she was to work with like within the stock market and money manager and like just to see her progress and and then she wrote books, right? And then she was like writing newsletters and then she was on the news and like, you know, in all of her wonderful fuchsia lipstick glory, okay, <laughs> like, <laughs> like um, and you know, Aquanet hair. Like, I was just like, wow, you know, she's dope. And so I think that we saw that, and yeah, they 
they weren't there like hovering over us so we were latchkey kids right mm-hmm. we come home after school our mom wasn't there we did what we had to do we we learned resilience we learned to be extremely resilient and I feel like we've brought but at the same time we had a lot of trauma because our parents weren't there like that and so and so I feel like I brought all of that I've brought all of that into the work that I'm doing right now you know and so that um yeah, that, that just kind of brought back like a whole wave of emotion and remembrance. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. And now, and I appreciate you talking about like that, my anti-racist revenue model. Like, I think, I don't know how many anti-racist revenue models there are out there, but this is definitely one. And I'm, and I'm glad that, um, that this was, it was a three o'clock in the morning type epiphany thought, like, wait a minute, this is how we should do it. You know, cause I'm definitely one that believes in reparations. Number one, a huge follower of Dr. Claude Anderson. So if you know anything about Dr. Claude Anderson, then you would, you know, he talks a lot about, um, you know, black folk, you know, in the the wealth um, divide, the racial wealth divide, not being, um, not moving much at all in terms of the amount of economic power and economic wealth that we've been able to acquire in like, hundred years. So I, um, so I, so I, I always consider like, okay, how do I, how do I create an organization that is anti-racist from the rooted to the tuta? Like every single thing that we do, I measure, it has to be anti-racist. And so, yeah, I ask, and I say it like this, I ask white organizations to pay the full rate um, and organizations that have the economic means to do so so that we're able to provide this free service to black and brown led organizations. And I've never had a white organization push back or say no, you know, to that model, because Mm -hmm. I think people are starting to have increased empathy. People are starting to have increased understanding and people are starting to have increased um, like awareness about what it looks like to shift to dramatically shift power um, back to folks that have not had it. Um, and so that's why that revenue model has been pretty incredible for measure. And for those that are thinking about starting a nonprofit or building a nonprofit, you cannot depend on philanthropy if you are a person of color, mm. period. Especially a Black woman, because the data shows it like all the way that we are the less funded um, group for some odd reason, okay? But because we're the ones that do pretty much the hardest work and the most (laughs) impactful work, you Mm -hmm. know, but they still, for some reason, so you have got to think outside the box and you have to be innovative in the way that you fund your nonprofit. And so this is our solution. Yeah. As a person who does fundraising full-time, I'm like, you got to get creative. What are, what are you going to do to make this they make this happen? So yeah, especially, you know, now that I work at AJC, a lot of folks who are friends of mine, like, well, what's your like donor breakdown? Like we have a lot of white people who donate. And my friend's like, do you think it's out of guilt? I was like, no, I think it's out of empathy. Like them knowing that the system has been super jacked up and they knowing that it's the history of their ancestors and if like they are seeing this work and how important this work is and I I was reading somewhere of like 
when you support a black woman, you're really supporting every other marginalized group because like I said before, because we are constantly like thinking of of ways to make this world better, right? Between education and environmental stuff and sustainability. Like that's a thing I'm really big on this year, like trying to be more environmentally conscious and sustainable. And so I've been researching black folks who have done this work because we see constantly like the white folks who are centered around it. But we look, if you look at the, the history, it's mostly people of color, specifically indigenous folks who have always been really focused on not destroying the planet. So anyway, I could tangent about that for hours. Um, I think one of the other interesting things too is, and you wrote down in here talking about protecting black girls and that that is well, obviously a thing I hold really close to my heart. And as a black girl who was very, like I said before, very supported, very encouraged and also super protected, like while I was a, a latchkey kid for, for a while, my mom ended up um, going back to school. And so she was able to be a stay-at-home mom for a little while. And the to be a latchkey kid, but also have a mother who was very much like, this is how you stay safe. And this is what safety looks like. And having, and having been told that she had, like her mom had that same conversation with her and the stuff we have to teach, not only our Black children, but specifically our Black girls. And I know like a lot of black boys have the like, this is what the world's going to view as a black man conversation looks like. And I think the conversation is different for black girls. Um, we see how overly sexualized black girls are. We see that black girls are the most suspended at school. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of want to shift and, and talk about that because I think that's such an interesting thing that people don't often think about. Yeah, I know. Thanks for creating that, um, that space to talk about the work um, to disrupt, and I call it, you know, disrupting adultification bias. And um, when I first heard that word, I had, I didn't really understand it. Like mm -hmm. I, it was, it was a new concept for me. Now, mind you, Kimberly Crenshaw back in the nineties, you know, she's mm -hmm. the mother of intersectionality and the idea that we have several different factors of oppression and they intersect. And that, and that circle of intersection is where we have to really be laser focused on. Um, and so adultification bias is really at the heart of intersectionality. It's like how we treat black girls and how we think about black girls. So the definition is a social or cultural stereotype that's based on how adults perceive black girls in the absence of their behavior or what they say or what they're wearing. It's, it's about this, the way that society has been um, socialized to understand, you know, black girls. And it's very, it's very historical, right? Like it starts, it starts because it started back when we were involuntarily brought over here right? And we looked at Black girls in two different ways. We looked at Black girls to either breed or to labor. And so all of these stereotypes really kind of centers around that. And this, you know, there, there's a couple of scripts or uh, major stereotypes that we've really come to understand is the Jezebel, and that's that hypersexualized girl, mm -hmm. um, the Sapphire, it's that's that like remember when I talked about the angry black woman mm -hmm. stereotype and like having you know 
that one. And then there's also the mammy, like, you know, having to take care of everyone, you know, black girl magic and da, 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 da. you know, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with black girl magic, but I, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I tell the story, the black girl magic almost killed me. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so, and so like having, like embracing these stereotypes, but then what that then translates to when it, when it, when we talk about adultification bias upon black girls is that we, um, and study and the study has shown. <laughs> so um, Georgetown University um, and there's some, they did a study back in 2017 um, that saw that black girls are looked at as less innocent starting at the age of five years old. Mm-hmm. And that then turned into, that then turns into rather um, overcriminalization, more suspensions, you know, not being looked at as the victim when it, when they are thrown into the criminal justice system. Um, we saw the, the young, um, the young baby who was nine years old, I got sprayed with the pepper spray in the back of the car. You remember what she was saying? She's like, I want my daddy. I want my daddy. And you know, the police officer then says, stop acting like a child. You know I mean? Are you kidding me? And she's like, I am a child. Like, you know, so it's this idea that we are treating our black girls unfairly like they are older. And we have to be very, very, very careful to stop doing that within our, even within our own homes in black families. Like we can't be, oh, you know, she fast, you know, or she she hot in the pants and da, 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 da. And like, you know, we can't do that. We can't do that on social media. Like I've seen some, I, I have a little, Brianna, I have gotten angry. When I tell you I get angry on, on social media, I get angry, okay? I, sometimes I have to like remember, like I, I got a position and I'm supposed to act a certain way. No, oh my God. So I see sometimes like pictures of little black girls being, being um, thrown around social media. Like, why are they wearing this bathing suit? Would you let your daughter wear this bathing suit? And it's like a four or five-year-old, you know? So, there, so people are like making these babies infamous because of their body at four or five years old, I'm like, how disgusting, you know? So anyway, Measure is doing the work to disrupt adultification bias through our program called the Innocence Initiative. Um, And it's all about creating new policy to um, address this issue. It's about empowering black girls, not talking to them about adultification bias. We do not do that, but it's about, you know, and and I'm kind of wary on empowering because that that kind of leads to like the thought of not having power in the first place, but they do. So just encouraging black girls through a summit that we just did with Girl Scouts and Hearts to Heal and Community Advocacy and Resilient and Healing Project um, through uh, the training of defense attorneys. So we've been able to train well over 700 defense attorneys on the term adultification bias so that they're able to really protect Black girls when they um, are faced with the judicial system. Again, so much I want to unpack. Um, <laughs> the first, the, the first part I want to talk about is like the she's so fast or like stay at a child's place or like the all these sort of things that we as little black girls are taught growing up of like you can't wear those shorts like x y and z is coming over or like you can't wear this in the house and it's like I live here why do I why are you telling me to change my behavior versus just not allowing x y and z person who you're concerned about near me and so that's a conversation I've been having with folks a lot lately too is like as a person who does not have children I want to start <laughs> with that of I am not a parent um, 
but you know, having, I have, I have three nephews and, but just growing up as a little black girl and now seeing my friends who have black daughters and like having that conversation with them of like, don't repeat this cycle, right? Like we can just not allow these, these people who are concerning access to our kids. And I think we're seeing this a lot too with newer parents or younger parents, whatever, whichever you want to look at it of like not forcing children to like hug people, not forcing them to like shake hands with people or, or come in contact with folks they don't know like that, that weirdness that we also kind of grew up with, like go give them a hug if someone asks for it. Like that's not, I think we are seeing a lot now, like people teaching their kids to have solidarity in their body. Um, and then also the strong black woman. Let me tell you how tired I am. My friend Aaron and I talk about this all the time. Of how black women are, we're expected to be resilient. We're expected to like take take it on the chin and just keep and keep moving. And it's still something I'm unpacking. Like I don't let people help me. I don't reach out when I need things. Like I and I have been in therapy since I was 15. Um, but even still, like when my mom passed away, like I didn't cry at my mom's funeral because I felt like I had to be strong for my dad. Like there's just all these things in our in the way we're raised and the things we learn of like how we as black women are supposed to show up like super stoically, um, not supposed to like make a scene, not supposed to be too loud, not to be so, not to, not supposed to be whatever, fill in the blank here. And so as a, as a woman, as a black woman who's often seen as strong, I'm like, don't do that. Like it is so exhausting to be a strong black woman because we were expected to essentially be high performing at all time. Like, and I tell that to people, I'm like, I'm expected to be on at all times. Yeah. So that's another thing I, I sit with still now too, of like, like you're, you were saying like black girl magic almost killed you. I'm like, it's still almost killing all of us. Like we have such high anxiety. We have such high stress. My blood pressure is through the roof. Um, and my doctor and I were talking about, she was, why I'm like, I'm a black woman in America. I don't understand this question. Right. Like, so even having that, that conversation with people like, why are you stressed? I'm like, I'm always stressed. Like I live in a country that is trying to kill me constantly. Um, so that's that's the thing that really just hit me because like I said, my friend Aaron and I talk about it all the time of like how the strong black woman sentiment is killing a lot of black women. Yeah. And it and again that 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 um that whole notion is one hundred percent because of structural racism and because of the generations and generations of like being stripped down to independence right to like having to be I'm an independent black woman like not that it's anything wrong with being an independent black woman more power to every single independent black woman that's out there that's you know that's got their own car that got their own job that's doing their thing you know I love that but Mm -hmm. at the same time we have to realize that you know there is vulnerability that that lies um in the heart of black women on the for every single strong black woman you know, there's an equally soft component of her that sometimes isn't seen, um, that com- that part of her that that needs to be protected and that needs to be loved and that needs to be um, recognized at the same time of seeing her as this powerful being because she is, <laughs> like she's mm-hmm. powerful, she is um, incredible, she is majestic in all of that, right? But we have to um, be able to show love to that part of her that needs that needs someone. And I think what we've seen, especially in the last, you know, half a decade or so, <laughs> since, you know, in the, the last few years, really, it's about 
Black women supporting Black women, unapologetically supporting Black women, and uplifting and elevating their our hair and our melanin and our lips and our, you know, everything about us, no matter what, just supporting each other and celebrating each other, not body shaming each other. In fact, embracing every single curve that we have, um, embracing every idea and, you know, a new business started, you know, by Black women, like we are supporting each other. And so when we realize Black women, when we realize that we pretty much have each other and can, and can be each other's support and foundation, we're showing up. But we always, we always have. It's just mm-hmm. now we're realizing, wait, wait a minute, we're about to show up for each other. Mm-hmm. And when Black women show up for each other, we put a president we put a vice president in the in the freaking office, you know, and one day a president <laughs> in the <laughs> office that looks like us. So yeah. major encouragement. <laughs> yeah, uh, I love that you said that. I'm a big believer in like there's room for all of us. Like the fact that people are, especially black women, like we were sort of taught by society that there's only space for one of us. So we were supposed to be in competition with each other. And so to see that shift and black women supporting each other from people you like know personally but like just being on social media of and I think like I said when when I fangirled about you Virginia and Pamela like just to see black women winning is so important and we see this a lot in Hollywood like when Viola Davis won and Taraji P. Henson like lost it like that's how I think that's when I think of like full-on like black women supporting black women of like cheering you on no matter what and I think that's such a like a very special thing in our community and another thing I'm also really big on is like creating space like if I get invited to speak at something and I can't do it like I have a list of other black women I'm like I can't but she can't um and then like having black women friends who live here who've only lived here maybe like a year or two and who are like I can't find like any black woman I don't know any black woman I'm like okay when the world opens back up these are the people I'm like I'm gonna have like a black woman retreat at this point and just like get us all together because it's just like the stuff that happens in the room when black women are together um or just in community together at all and so like that's a really big thing that's important to me and in, in just creating that space especially here in Austin it's the pure brilliance of black women. And, and, you know, that was the first thing that I did in Austin, like even before AJC, even before all of the marches and everything else, it was about edifying black, black girls, and then bringing black women together to edify black girls. So I started, I restarted, sorry, restarted the, um, the Miss Juneteenth pageant in Austin. It had, you know, they've always had this really huge pageant and very uh, vibrant community came together around it. But then somehow it fizzled out um, and stopped for some years. And so my daughter and I were just kind of like, we just moved here and we were bored and <laughs> we were watching, you know, one of these pageant shows. And I'm like, you know, and I wonder if they have the Miss, Ju- the Miss Juneteenth pageant here. And Jaleesa was like, I don't know, you know, maybe we should look into it. So that was really our first work was partnering with Greater East Austin Youth Association um, which is one of the first Black-led um, nonprofits in Austin. And so we partnered with them um, and worked with the Juneteenth Committee to re- reignite this pageant. And I also said to myself, you know, we need to make sure that this pageant is a scholarship pageant. So then 
you know, cre- created that partnership with Houston Tillotson University. This is what, when I was chairwoman um, to make it actually a scholarship pageant. So our winner would win a scholarship to Houston Tillotson. Um, and so now, and then, you know, I did that for about five years and then gave that idea, that work to back to the community because I'm not from here. I'm not an Austinite. Mm-hmm. And so now Miss um, Tanisha Barnett, who is incredible, is the chairwoman of that pageant. And she was actually Miss Juneteenth back, you know, back in the day. And so just that beauty of like being able to come to this community and still be embraced, even though I'm not from here. Um, to create something and to give it back to the community by, of which it belongs um, was, uh, was, uh, was an honor. And then, you know, to see all the Black women that, that connected during that experience of the Miss Juneteenth pageant, I think that's a story in itself because there are so many connections that were made through that opportunity that are still existing right now. Um, you know, businesses being created out of it. <laughs> I mean, just, yeah, just some, some incredible stuff happened out of that pageant. Well, I thank you so much for coming on. I could talk to you for days about all the things, but <laughs> I will be sure to link everything we talked about in the show notes. Um, at the end of every episode, I like to sort of end with a palate cleanser or like a high note with, by asking the question, it's a two-parter. What is the best advice you've ever been given or what is a piece of advice you would give to your younger self? Oh, that's good. <clears throat> um, so I thought about this and, um, and I've said, I've actually been asked this question once and I, I think I'm going to stay consistent on my answer. And so it's really Dr. Um, Colette. Okay. Pierce Burnett. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my major mentors um, love her so, 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 so much. And when she first you know, took office there, I had, I had the opportunity to sit down with her. Um, and she just said, you know what, Mimi, just say yes, just say yes, you know, to different opportunities, just say yes and see what happens. And so I, I did that. I started saying yes to several things. <laughs> um, and there, there's a way to healthily say yes. So I, I was kind of doing a little bit to the unhealthy way. Like mm-hmm. I was saying yes to everything, you know, but, but just having that idea of just saying yes, really opened up so many doors. And so I would say to people that, yeah, say yes, go out there on the limb, you know, high risk, but high reward, make sure that you are, um, are, you know, launching yourself into opportunities that will, that will prove, you know, high impact. Um, And so that, to me, I thought that was just like the most, the best advice I have ever 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 receive was just to say yes to believe in yourself that's it for this week's episode of the tea with brie be sure to follow us on instagram at the tea with brie visit the website the tea with brie podcast.com and send us an email the tea with brie podcast at gmail.com don't forget to rate review and subscribe on apple podcast or you get your podcast a special thanks to mama duke for the theme music and i'll talk to y'all next week bye